Welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns, and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. During the month of July 2022, we're hosting a special mini series examining the many legal issues specific to LGBTQ Plus people subsequent to the recent Supreme Court decision. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This is a quickly evolving area of the law and today's conversation is being recorded on Monday, July 11, 2022. Today's episode is the third in our Dobbs Rapid Response mini-series and we'll be focusing on access to gender-affirming healthcare, bodily autonomy, and medical data privacy. Today, I will be joined by Alejandra Caraballo. Alejandra is a clinical instructor at the Harvard Law School Cyber Law Clinic, where she works on the intersection of gender and technology. She is the first openly trans woman of color to teach at Harvard Law School. Before joining Harvard, she worked as a staff attorney with the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund and at the LGBTQ Law Project and New York Legal Assistance Group. Alejandra's professional focus has been on advancing the civil rights of LGBTQ plus people in a variety of civil legal contexts, such as healthcare access, immigration, and family law. Among her many accolades, she was previously named one of the nation's best LGBTQ lawyers under 40 by the National LGBTQ Bar Association. Most recently, she was named to Go Magazine, Women We Love, Class of 2022. And if that somehow wasn't enough, she's also a talented guitar player and home brewer. And my, I wish we were talking about hops today instead of dobs. Alejandra, thank you so much for coming to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Shane. So, you know, we've spoken about the various opinions in Dobbs. I was wondering if you could start off our conversation with a deeper dive into how Dobbs eradicated the right to privacy. Yeah, I mean, as much as the justices in the majority opinion tried to say that somehow this was different and that somehow the right to an abortion was severable from the broader right to privacy because it involves, you know, quote unquote, the potential life, the terms that they took from the Roe decision. I think it's much closer to what Clarence Thomas is was calling for, like a broader retrenchment on an elimination of the broader idea of substantive due process rights and everything that stems from that. And particularly because as much as they say this only applies to Roe and this only applies to right to an abortion, type of analysis that they did can be applied to basically any substantive due process, right? because most of those have only been recognized within the last 60 years. And therefore there isn't much beyond that that they can really point to. Contraception had been banned for most of US history. I can't even begin to see where there's a deeply rooted history and tradition of interracial marriage, let alone same-sex marriage. And so when you start adding in this kind of analysis of looking to what did a bunch of white, mostly slave owners, but also like mostly white, entirely white men thought in the 1700s and 1800s, you're not going to get very enlightened views on what the right to privacy entails. Um, and so it's an, it, I mean, it's beyond regressive. It's, it's neo-reactionary in terms of its attempt to tie our societal standards to what Matthew Hale and, and William Blackstone thought in like the 1700s and 1800s when they were sentencing people to die for witchcraft. Oh, we're so, back to witchcraft. Yeah. 
so it's not it's not great but really the the right to privacy and this kind of broader understanding of the penumbra of rights and this is one of the things that endlessly infuriates me is because this is like i always feel like the ninth amendment is always hanging out and is like what am i like a joke to you uh, because like this is precisely what the Ninth Amendment was intended to stop, was this idea that like if it didn't exist in the 1700s, 1800s, it's not a right that we recognize. You know, I always like to read the text of the Ninth Amendment because it just it, it's exactly what this is supposed to stop. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Meaning that like, hey, we're writing down the Bill of Rights. We can't think of everything. It's 1787. It is a boiling hot summer in Philadelphia. Obviously, there's going to be things that come around that we think are important. But just because we wrote things down in eight amendments in the Bill of Rights, the first eight, doesn't mean that you can't assert other rights. And so that's, you know, where they kind of got this idea of the penumbra of rights and the right to privacy. Um, and that was first expressed in Griswold. And then subsequently, uh, the one that extended the right to contraceptive access for non-married women, and then subsequently Roe. And then it was built upon as well by uh, Loving v. Virginia, um, and then Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and then obviously Lawrence v. Texas and uh, Obergefell v. Hodges. So we have all of these things that broadly, very popularly supported things that they're trying to turn back the clock 60, 70 years. And in some ways, the way that their analysis goes is trying to turn back the clock 200 years. And it's a threat to pretty much the entire concept of a right to privacy. Thank you for bringing the Ninth Amendment into the conversation. We hadn't had the opportunity earlier in the series to explore that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's the most misunderstood, miscited, and also just wrongly interpreted amendment in the Constitution. I mean, the Supreme Court jurisprudence around the Ninth Amendment is that basically it means nothing. It's not operative, and basically they don't really give it any weight and in terms of like interpreting rights i mean they just kind of construe the ninth in conjunction with like broad readings of the fourth fifth and 14th amendments to kind of like give us this broader idea of a right to privacy under the 14th amendments uh due process clause but for me it's just like yeah like no the, the, the ninth amendment means broader it means that, like we couldn't think of everything and especially when you think of the way the constitution's amendment process is not just historically, but I think it's an it's anomalous in the difficulty to amend the U.S. Constitution. If it was just two thirds of both houses of Congress, it's one thing. But the fact that you have to add in the three quarters ratification, this is what why we saw the Equal Rights Amendment fail, right? Initially, although I keep keep a note in that I have a bone to pick about the Equal Rights Amendment uh, and something that Biden could do to ratify it instantly. But you know that was kind of the last major civil rights amendment to be proposed. Women are over half of the population and somehow we couldn't get that through. So how are we ever supposed to get an amendment that protects same-sex marriage, that protects trans people, that protects the access to gender affirming care? Like how are we supposed to get any kind of amendments for these things 
when we can't even get an amendment to protect the rights of women who constitute over half of the population. And so it, it basically makes this absolutely majoritarian sense of distribution of rights and then a minoritarian interpretation of those rights. Because what the Supreme Court did is it's a very minoritarian view. It's a very far right Christian nationalist view of the constitution. And it's kind of a joke that they interpreted the second amendment in light of the 14th amendment and said, you know, the day before and said, we can't trust states to regulate guns. And then the next day say, well, we need states to regulate people's wombs and uteruses. And it's entirely fucked up. I excuse my language. I, I'm incredibly animated by this issue. And rightly so. This is a very discouraging and scary time to be an advocate in the movement. You spoke a little bit about history and tradition and what healthcare used to look like. There are pieces of the decision literally hearkening back to the time of witchcraft. I want to talk about the history of the tradition, the pre-Dobbs landscape for obtaining gender-affirming healthcare in New York. Can you take us through what that looks like? Because sometimes I think there's this misconception that we live in New York, everything is easy, everything is accessible. Yeah, gender-affirming care, I mean, is so different state by state. Each state has had different regulatory regimes around how they regulate different insurance plans, their own Medicaid programs. Uh, it's just an endless layer of complicated regulations, different insurance policies. Um, and so for most of New York, I would say New York did lead the way, not by choice, but mostly because of a really great lawsuit started by Sylvia Rivera Law Project. I believe Chase may have been involved in this before he left for the ACLU, I, I may stand corrected on that one, but I, I know it started, like it ultimately settled in 2014 or like really starting in 2014. And basically Medicaid did not cover gender affirming care in the state of New York until the basic 14. And I don't even think they really won the case until 2016. Um, it was like Cruz v. Zucker, I believe was the case. And until that point, like there was no gender-affirming care coverage in state Medicaid program. And because of Obamacare, that affected a lot of people because of the expansion of Medicaid coverage. And so there's a lot of trans folks on Medicaid, so it was a really huge deal. And so finally they amended the Medicaid rules. It was still not great. There's been a lot of back and forth and they finally amended it. And finally they just decided on a medical necessity test as determined by the doctors. And that one has been incredibly uh, helpful. I mean, to the point where, especially if you have a Medicare, which is a Medicaid provider here in, in New York State that focuses on people with HIV or people at risk of HIV, Medicare has just been wonderful. They cover facial feminization surgery, they cover body contouring, they cover breast augmentation, top surgery. We cover phalloplasty for trans men, metoidioplasty, uh, top surgery for trans men, uh, masculization surgeries for trans men. Basically everything that, you know, has ever been cited in WPATH as being a gender affirming surgery is basically covered by Amita and some of the other, specifically Amita, but as some of the other um, Medicaid providers are as well. In the private insurance space, this was much, much more complicated, uh, mainly because you have a mix of federal and state regulations. 
So there are, you know, and I think in terms of the nonprofit sector here, which is really big in New York, most of the big nonprofits use plans that are sponsored by the insurance companies. So that means that whenever a plan, like whenever you go to the doctor and they pay out the old ultimate money that's going into paying that medical bills coming from the insurance company. And so for small nonprofits, it makes sense. They don't have to manage all of the stuff. They can just offload it all for one upfront cost per employee. Um, and they're off the hook for any of the liability, but bigger companies, uh, usually in the private sector, like Google, Microsoft, you know, MetLife, companies like that typically have what are called self-funded plans, meaning that they usually have uh, third-party administrators. So like you may work at like Google and have Cigna, right? But Cigna is administering the plan, but the ultimate when that doctor is getting paid, it's coming out of Google's funds. And so the difference between those are very crucial because the latter, those self-funded plans, are regulated by federal ERISA regulations and preempts state regulations. And so the state of New York has no ability to regulate those. And then in terms of like the, you know, the, the sponsored plans by the insurance companies, the only ability to regulate those by the state is for contracts. Otherwise you still start getting into ERISA problems. And so they have to regulate it as a contract. And so DFS ran into a lot of issues because there was a lot of pressure by advocates for them to get coverage. I mean, for me as like someone working in direct legal services at NILAG for three years, like I had clients on Medicaid that were regularly getting FFS covered or facial feminization surgery. And I spent three years fighting to get it covered myself. And when I was at Till Death, it wasn't covered. <laughs> and so it was like a huge problem because it's not that the orgs didn't want to cover it. It's that the insurance companies were a huge roadblock and the insurance companies didn't want to cover it. And so oftentimes the employers were at odds, they're at odds with their own employees and then they're at odds with the insurance companies. And it's a really terrible situation to be when I had clients coming in that were getting this care covered under Medicaid. And I, at various points, like thought about taking a second job at Starbucks or even taking a leave of absence to qualify for Medicaid so I could get this stuff covered. Like the, I mean, that was the lengths of stuff I was thinking of having to go through. And so it was like particularly upsetting and it was difficult to get DFS to like really care about this. Um, you know, it took a, a coalitional effort and, you know, DFS finally really started cracking down on, you know, and issuing more circulatory letters and saying like, this is discriminatory, but the insurance companies didn't view it that way. And finally they cracked down. And so now in most national plans, you'll see, oh, this is our coverage for gender affirming care. But if you live in the states of Washington and New York, please check your individual plan uh, because of the regulations are different and oftentimes require explicit additional coverage. And now Hawaii had passed its own version of its bill, and I believe Colorado might have as well. So now we're starting to see a lot of blue states actually pass requirements to explicitly cover more care. And because of that, the insurance companies themselves will be under more pressure just to unify the plans because, it, you know, while they'll say it's to cut costs, like this is minimal, like trans people aren't a huge part of the population. And, and so New York has not been all sunshine and rainbows in terms of gender affirming care. Um, and so, you know, and if you still work for a company that is 
refusing to cover gender-affirming care and they're self-funded, there's much less recourse for you. Uh, you still could still file a Title VII or even Division of Human Rights complaint, but it's a much harder process than necessarily filing a, a going through the appeals process with the Department of Financial Services, which is what I did to finally ultimately get my care covered. Thank you for your advocacy. It's incredible the lengths that people still have to go to here in New York State to get healthcare approved. What we've kind of been talking about in the last 10 years or so has really focused on the insurance piece, but I do want to make sure it's clear to all of our listeners out there that gender-affirming healthcare is not something new within the last 10 or 20 years. There's a much longer tradition in that, but as you alluded to earlier, not a long enough tradition to meet that 200 plus year test. Yeah. Although, you know, I guess in a sense, I mean, part of like the tradition aspect is that it's, it's very narrowly construed. And I feel like Justice Kagan did a really good job showing how outcome determinative it was because guns were heavily regulated in the early colonial period. And especially, you know, the early United States, like you couldn't just walk around town, Boston with open carry weapons or even concealed carry. Like you oftentimes had to go to the local constable and like declare the weapons you had and oftentimes turn them in while you're in town. And so like, it was just a complete erasure of what history and tradition meant in terms of guns and just trying to like recreate history. And I mean, obviously the law that was struck down in New York pistol um, association was a hundred, over a hundred years old. So you're telling me that a law was so blatantly unconstitutional that it lasted a hundred years on the books. Like it's just, it, it's, it's outcome determinative. And so when, it, but when you're talking about in the context of trans folks, like we have a, tra- there's a history of trans folks existing. Albert Cashier fought in the civil war as a trans man. I mean, I, well, as what we would call today a trans man, but he lived his entire life as a man and was only discovered as not being a man when he was uh, institutionalized in an uh, elder care facility for veterans. And when they went, apparently I think he had a dementia or, or diminishing uh, mental faculties and they discovered that he did not have male genitalia. And so they thought there was a case of fraud and they like called up his old civil war veteran buddies and they all vouched for him and like all made sure to take care of him and you know and so like there's always been a more complex and nuanced understanding of gender i think prior to the the modern era and yeah i I mean even if you go back like there's there's even some literature suggesting that like scythian priests millennia ago would uh consume basically the remains of pregnant horse urine which was extremely high in estrogen as a form of like feminizing, <laughs> like they, they, they put the two and two together and they were ingesting basically like high levels of estrogen. And so, you know, like, and even beyond that, like, you know, in the 1920s and thirties, like in Berlin, you had Magnus Hirschfeld, like, I know it's not in the United States, but there was a much broader understanding of gender affirming care. And like, we've always had people who have challenged a gender binary. And if you look to, and that's the thing is like, when you already start looking history and tradition within this country, you're already excluding, right? You're already creating this like white European narrative of what gender means. And like, if you're looking towards like the Indian subcontent prior to colonization, 
like you have this notion of like the hijra and you know and if you look at pakistan pakistan like despite you know a lot of challenges like is actually proving to try and make the country a much better place for trans people there and iran is the same thing um because there's a much more nuanced understanding like prior to western colonialism of gender and you see this across civilizations like mandarin does not have like gendered pronouns in the language so like the idea of like we're having this huge fight over pronouns and like this stupid idea of like quote unquote sex-based pronouns meanwhile like there are entire languages spoken by billions of people that don't include like gendered pronouns and it's like you know so it's a very western idea and so when you talk about that in that context it's like hard to see how this court says that you know oh gender affirming care didn't exist we didn't see matthew blackstone talking about it in the in his treatises and it's like i'm not even sure that like matthew blackstone even knew what a clitoris was so i'm not sure if we should be trusting the dude about anything to do with anyone's sexual well-being and you know gender identity but you know beyond that like it's just it's so reductive it's an attempt to basically like create a suicide pact with our country and our constitution to this like idea of what a right was in like 1787 and it's not consistent with having a modern democracy we didn't have like they didn't have any concept of modern medicine then right like they didn't have penicillin they didn't have antibiotics they didn't even have germ theory you know do you want to know what surgery was like in 1787 it was like a barber with a hacksaw and like you better hope he finishes as quickly as possible because that would that you know and here's a piece of wood for you to bite down on it's just it's insane to me that we can't acknowledge progress and that somehow we have to just bind ourselves to this archaic view of, of social progress how are we already seeing and where are we already seeing the Dobbs decision being used to attempt to limit access to gender affirming health care for either minors or adults? Yeah, so we already saw it used um, in the Eknes Tucker case, uh, which is stemming out of Alabama, where they attempted to put in place a felony ban up to 10 years. just insane to me for anyone that provides gender affirming care to a minor and the minor is defined as someone under the age of 19 so even an 18 year old who can buy lotto tickets sign up for the military get married have a kid like all of these things like but they can't they can't consent to, to gender affirming care and on top of that like alabama's medical consent law is 13 years old so a 13 year old can consent to literally any other medical procedure except for gender affirming care. Um, and so they attempted to put a felony ban. It was enjoined um, after a lot of shena- procedural shenanigans that saw it go through five different judges in the span of a week between two different coalitional org lawsuits. And after it was enjoined, the state immediately appealed and their appellant's brief was due June 27th. And Dobbs obviously came down on the 24th. And so they spent the weekend and they cited it, I think, over a dozen times throughout their brief on their appeal to the 11th Circuit. And so we're already seeing it used, right? They're already saying there's no right to gender affirming care that's not rooted in our our notions of, of tradition and history. But, you know, it's 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 also depending on the framing, right? 
because those the claims brought in that case also deal with 14th Amendment right of parents, substantive due process rights for parents. And we're actually seeing these claims around substantive due process rights for the right of parents to determine the education and the medical decisions of their children in the context of anti-trans cases trying to attack gender-affirming policies and respectful policies in blue states. So there's a lawsuit in Massachusetts. There's an uh, administrative complaint in California. There was a lawsuit in Wisconsin attempting to create basically policies that would, would require forced misgendering and the forced outing of trans students. And they're citing 14th Amendment substance due process, like the rights of parents. And it's really interesting to me because that's exactly how the ACLU, or not in that case, sorry, not the, the HRC and the, the coalition in that case, and Eknes Tucker, they framed it around this idea of substantive due process for the rights of parents, as well as equal protection clause, because just the like outright disparate treatment on the basis of sex, but, and transgender status, but what is mind boggling to me is like the way that they frame it is like, oh, there's no right to like gender affirming care. It's not rooted, but it, parents making medical decisions for their children is deeply rooted, right? And so what you're saying is that this is an exception to that. And so I think it, it's also how it's argued. And I feel like they can't have it both ways. And if you want to start talking about something to do process, like we've had this entire fall movement because this has very much been just a capitalization on anti-vax hysteria and reactionaries to COVID. Um, but this like parents' rights movement that is more about Christian nationalists asserting their rights over other parents than actual like parental rights. But, um, you know, they've all been like passing these like parental rights bills, which is what the don't say gay bill was. It was just basically saying like, as a parent, I have a right to make sure my kid isn't ever hears the word gay or lesbian or comes into contact with an LGBTQ person. And it's like crazy to me the extent that they're trying to extend it, but then at the same time say that parent can't uh, with the best course of treatment and, and advice from doctors and in consultation, make that decision that yes, like this is the course of treatment for my child and the government could come in and say no. And so it's, there's a real strong tension there. And with Justice Thomas, like he didn't talk about the right to interracial marriage or the right to marriage in the context of banning anti-miscegenation laws for good reason, because he's in an interracial marriage, but that case relied on substantive due process. And so what's, what's really frustrating to me is that Oh, if you want to start going down this road of basically eliminating substitute due process entirely, which is very much the project of the Federalist Society, they want to eliminate substitute due process entirely. Well, there goes the right to like for parents, because pretty much our modern jurisprudence around what constitutes the proper rights of parents is built on substitute due process. So it's you're you're gonna end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and I think there's gonna be a lot of people that are upset because hey, if you don't have substantive due process rights for your kiddo, then California and New York can come in and ban homeschooling, like most other Western countries do, and I would actually argue sane Western countries do, because I, I don't think you can build a healthy functioning democracy if you are sequestering a, a, a significant portion of the population from interacting with the rest of the country. So. Through, through public schools, but I digress. 
It sounds like this could even bleed into, you know, something we've deeply been involved in litigating for years and the question of who is a parent, right? Because that question within the question of who gets to make those important medical decisions, if we take that right away to make those important medical decisions, that's one less factor we have to decide who is a legal parent. Yeah. I mean, New York is famous for this, like with the Brooke SB case in 2016, which I know Legal did a lot of work around. And I actually had a Brooke SB case. And like the reality on the ground, like, you know, I had a a non-bio mom who was there for the birth of the kids. Like one of the kids like even had my client's last name on the birth certificate and like went through this whole fact thing, like met all of the elements and the factors. And I had a very homophobic referee in Queens and Queens family court and basically bought the, we were just friends defense. And it was incredibly infuriating. And the fact that like the New York, like the state legislature still hasn't amended to make this to codify this is deeply troubling to me because as we've seen somehow with entirely democratic control of of the state governorship for now you know going on over 12 years or however many years 16 years somehow we still have a conservative court of appeals in uh new york um but i think it kind of shows that even in progressive states this is an issue it took until 2016 for the rights of non-bio parents and some of the biggest opponents of this are actually a lot of feminist groups Sanctuary for families, like they view it as a means for abusive partners to somehow exert control in courts. And meanwhile, the actual collateral to this is LGBTQ families who have very established relationships as a parental relationships. And it's just a matter of, it's a threshold issue, right? Like because custody issues are a matter of habeas corpus, it's an extension of habeas. And to even have standing to bring that, you have to show that there's under the DRL 70, like that you qualify as a parent. And it's really worrying to me, especially with attempts to overturn Obergefell, because the sad reality is most parents or LGBTQ parents still need second parent adoption because even though they're married and they, you know, conceive the child together, either with a surrogate or using a donated sperm or anything like that, they're still not fully recognized. Here in, in New York, they are, but if you're traveling cross country and you get in a car accident in Arkansas, you could be, you know, and, and let's say the, the bio mom and the child are in a coma and they're not gonna let the, the non-bio mom make medical decisions because they don't recognize them as the parent. And so like, this is still a huge problem and it still has not been solved. And we're already looking, staring down the barrel at a potential overturning of Obergefell, which would result in 35 states immediately overturning same-sex marriage. And we don't even know the kinds of chaos that would unleash. Are all the marriages that occurred grandfathered in? Are they voided ab initio? It's just like, it would just be throwing even further kerosene on the fire of of all kinds of, of just legal havoc that this would bring upon the states and families. And additionally, you know, when you're talking about recognition of who's a parent, I think one of the things that like people don't realize when you see these bioessentialist arguments used to attack trans folks is that they can easily be harnessed to like create a understanding of families as biological, biological only. I mean, we do have a long history of adoption, but that is a very costly process and it creates 
horrific inequities for low-income people. And we kind of talked about this last week too with Brian Esser, how expensive and time-consuming yes. LGBTQ yeah, exactly family it. formation is and how unjustly that that rules out single people, couples, and other parent groups who would love nothing more and would be nothing but the best parent out there. Basically, like the reason why my clients ended up in that situation is because they couldn't get a second parent adoption. They didn't necessarily have the ability, you know, I've, I've known people that have gone through even the foster process or the, the adoption process. And it, it is incredibly extensive, like the things that you have to do. And when you're already living on the margins in New York city, like the last thing you have is thousands of dollars to like, make sure that you have like all of the things up to snuff so that you can then hire someone to come in and do an inspection and do all of the, the checks. And that's not even accounting for legal fees and the court costs and all of those things. And it's a huge process. And it also requires specialized knowledge. Um, my supervisor um, at NILAG was one of the few people that was able to do it. And mainly because she had to do it for her own kiddos but she was also intimately uh, familiar with the process and it was it's really disheartening because like we still don't have fundamental justice around like even recognizing same-sex parents as the parents for purposes of like in all respects like we may in new york we may in california but this country is bigger than new york and california yeah, and you've touched on the many challenges that come with no family as ever landlocked to New York State specifically, like your car accident example is perfectly on point. Can you talk a little bit about how this jeopardizes bodily autonomy on a nationwide level? Right. If you don't have the ability to make healthcare decisions around gender affirming care, if you don't have the right to make healthcare decisions around seeking access to an abortion to get access to contraception what what can't the state regulate right if you start going down even the dark road of overturning lawrence v texas and bringing back sodomy bans you're you're going down a really dark path where the state can not only tell you what you can and can't take the state can also tell you who you and who you can't have sex with who you can't share a bed with it's it's incredibly disturbing and it starts to become very clear that this isn't really any concern about substantive due process like it never was like you know no, it's always you know it's like the same thing with with like the civil war they always say it was oh it was about states rights and i was like states rights to do what and at the end of the day it boils down to power and who has power to do to enforce rigid uh, traditional norms of gender and sexuality. And what we have now is this far right Christian nationalist court that's influenced by the Federalist Society and this incredible web of dark money groups. I mean, it even came out that, you know, some of these groups that had briefs before the court were praying with the justices. Um, and so, so you have this like just Christian nationalism just seeping into this. And so it's very clear, like they want to turn back the clock and they want to say like, it's not, it, it's no longer about not wanting to bake a cake. It's, we don't want LGBT people in public life. And if we find out about you, we want to put you in jail. Like that, that's where we're heading. And it's a very dark road. And it's one, you know, you don't have to go, you know, look, you know, I think people oftentimes overuse the, the, 
Weimar Republic fading into or basically collapsing into Nazi Germany, which I always think in this context, I think particularly for queer folks, because queer folks were sent to the camps. And I think it's always something to be wary of and look at where, so, but I think there's plenty of modern equivalents like Russia, Hungary, and Poland. And I think particularly with Russia, because the gay propaganda bill that they passed in 2013 was basically the equivalent of what happened with Don't Say Gay in Florida. And Christina Pushaw, the press secretary for Ron DeSantis, said as much that it was inspired by the gay propaganda bill in, by, passed by Viktor Orban in Hungary. And Viktor Orban and his party said it was inspired by Russia. So we have this kind of direct line. And by 2018, in Chechnya, they were there were there are concentration camps for gay men in Chechnya, which is an autonomous region of Russia, but it is still being sanctioned by the Kremlin. And the amount of homophobia that has gone on in, in Russia, it is not absolutely not safe to be an LGBTQ person. And therefore, like we're we're heading down a very, very dark road. Um, and I don't if the broader folks in the movement don't wake up to this creeping Christo-fascism that we're facing that seeks to scapegoat LGBTQ people as groomers, as pedophiles, as dangerous to children. You know, we're, we're heading a, a down a very, very dark path. We still feel the impact from that fire path, right? We still have clients that say, I, I don't want to end up on a list. What they're really referring back to is I'm scared of the government to know my sexual orientation and or gender identity because I'm afraid of being taken away from my family, my home, my job. We've seen, even with the expansion of recognition of gender marker X in New York state and other parts of the country, hesitation to get corrected identification documents with that same underlying fear of the state having that information. So not only are we potentially headed into frightening waters, we haven't even fully healed as a community from the waters we've already been in before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think everyone's right to be skeptical. I mean, I've had conversations with the folks, like I helped lobby and, and author some portions of the Gender Recognition Act in New York, specifically around out-of-state uh, birth certificates getting court orders is one of the things I helped with. But, you know, I talked with a lot of the advocates behind it and I was like, you know, because they were very proud and pushing that, you know, you can get ex-gender markers finally here in New York State. And I was like, I don't know, like, that's the last thing I'd want, because that's the, the, the list that people are first going to go after, especially like the way that we've seen, like, even in, you know, as, you know, I'm currently writing a law review article about interstate extradition and, and issues with the surveillance state post Dobbs. And already, like what we've seen in the immigration context where ICE has built this entire surveillance apparatus and has been able to obtain driver's license information, even by states that have explicitly said they would not abide by turning over data to the federal government. They just went and bought it off of data brokers. And so, you know, that that creates, that's just particularly, I, I you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, I think there's a, I would call it an intense paranoia in the queer community, but it's not paranoia if they're actually after you. And I think in many ways, like people are right to, to fear. I mean, we're less than 30 years from when this government basically was complicit in the genocide of gay men in this country by just complete abdication of its responsibility to ensure 
that the HIV AIDS research was being funded and that a cure was being sought and that treatment was being sought. And they basically sat on their hands for years knowing it because that they thought, yeah, you know, this is, this is just primarily affecting gay men. And so like, I think there's a lot of tremendous trauma in the, the LGBTQ community historically, especially I think among older folks, I think younger folks, especially Gen Z, like, I don't think they necessarily understand that some of the historical context of this because they really came up in a world where, you know, there was just these successive decisions and everything seemed to be getting better. And I don't think they really knew a world where HIV wasn't treatable and, you know, you just took prep. You can have gay marriage is legal in all, you know, now we're on seven years of it. So anyone who's like 22 years old now, like they were like 15 when that decision came out. Right. So like they've only known that. And so they haven't had this kind of same criminalization and persecution of LGBTQ people that I think a lot of the people, the older folks in the community, but that's the folks that always, I always turn to when it's like, oh, is this really getting that bad? Because I feel like in so many ways, you know, as someone who also like as a younger millennial, there was that kind of narrative that like, oh, society is always constantly progressing and we won't experience like a backsliding in this way. And so for me, like I've as a queer person, like and a trans person, like I've never experienced like that kind of backsliding. Like things have always just gotten better as the years have gone on. It's, I think, I don't know what's worse, like having grown up in kind of a persecuted environment and things got better and then you can see how things, bad things are or one where you never experienced it, but then you don't know how to handle like a return to that. And I think there's, there's a lot of generational issues around that and I, it's, it's harsh, but it is, is, is a very challenging time. It'd be interesting to see how the community generationally works together on this. Yeah. I think there was an article in the Washington post a few months ago that was basically talking to movement leaders that are now retired because they're in their seventies and eighties, but folks who were in the trenches during the AIDS crisis, the folks that were fighting bans on the three article clothing rules and like raids on gay bars and like remembering those days and them seeing like what's happening and and being frightened and there was a you know, great washington post article about it and i was like oh yeah no when when the elders are freaking out like i think this is like we're we're really starting to head into a dark dark place you spoke a little bit about the data brokers selling the information that even if the government isn't willing to turn over, there's kind of a, a third party workaround, so to speak, to get that if the price is right. I was wondering if you could touch a little bit more about the current internet landscape of protecting healthcare privacy online and how Dobbs has impacted that. I feel like Dobbs has been a wake up call to people for what privacy advocates have been saying all along and that we're in the age of surveillance capitalism. If the government in 1984 and like Orwell's 1984 would be sweating with the kind of power that modern companies, private companies have to surveil everything you do, I can know exactly what, where you're at, where you're located. They can know if you're walking, depending if you have a smartwatch on, they can know your heart rate. They can know your blood pressure. They can know who you're texting, who you're calling. They can know what you're buying what websites you're visiting. I, I, I mean, just absolutely granular level detail about you in a way that we've never seen in, in any civilization, let alone like modern civilization. And 
the problem with that is we don't have data laws or even a constitutional understanding in a way to protect that. Um, and Congress is completely immobilized. Uh, Europe has been trying to lead the way and they have GDPR and they have these, you know, the DSA and like all these other new regulations that are coming into place to really heavily protect data, but it's not ideal. It, it's still even the European regulations don't go far enough because they're still trying to strike this balance of letting these companies exist. And I think fundamentally, and I say this almost, I, I feel like I'm, I've become very cynical about tech, but I think most modern tech companies shouldn't exist because they're, or at least in the way that they run their business model, their entire business model is to extract as much data about you as possible to sell ads. And when you construe that with the lack of basically any data protections, right? Like the, the heart rate, the, even like your, your, your menstrual trackers, like flow, that's not protected under HIPAA. That's not considered medical information. It's considered health information, which is separate. And so they don't need a warrant to access that. And then you combine that with third-party doctrine where basically any private information that's held with a third party is presumptively considered that uh, you, you don't have a right to privacy in that information. All they need to do is subpoena these companies and it's not without precedent, right? Like I always say this and I feel people always think I'm being alarmist, but it wouldn't be, it would be entirely plausible for attorney general Paxton in Texas to subpoena flow for all of its records on people's menstrual cycles to determine who is pregnant. And, and, and as a Texas resident to monitor for uh, illicit abortions or unlawful abortions. But I, I, I don't hate to use that term unlawful abortion because I don't believe an abortion would be unlawful in that sense, but just to, to, for, for the common parlance, you know, and they can create a state surveillance system. Poland is pioneering this, right? Like they already created a pregnancy registry this year. And so um, after they banned abortion, after, basically stacking their Supreme Court. Like if you want to look at, like Poland is basically two or three years ahead of the US. And so, you know, and, and thinking that like Attorney General Paxton is gonna have like granular level access over your, your menstrual cycle if you're a Texas resident, like if people think, well, that's too far-fetched, I'm like, it's already happened in Missouri. There was Missouri state legislators as part of a committee that, that subpoenaed a Planned Parenthood cl abortion clinic and they were able to get detailed like menstrual notes about patients and one of the state legislators like actually literally created his own excel spreadsheet it was the most vile sick thing i've ever heard of or seen in my life and the fact that there was a more outrage is still stunning but it was all entirely legal and these companies have to comply with with legal process and so if you think that google or Apple or any of these other tech companies are going to save you and refuse to comply. Like they may put up a fight, but at the end of the day, under the current doctrines, most of them don't have a leg to stand on and they can only protract the legal fight um, and they would be likely to lose. And so you, you combine this kind of retrenchment and return to this like view of, of lack of bodily autonomy, a view that women, LGBTQ people, indigenous people, because I also you know, say this, like the criminalization of abortion has been just almost entirely felt by black and indigenous people, as we saw with Lizelle Herrera in Texas. And so, you know, when you have that, you combine that with the ability for states 
to basically, I mean, it's, it wouldn't be hard for a state like Texas to say, like, they've already passed their social media law that, like, was already trying to regulate this stuff, um, like, on Twitter and stuff. It wouldn't be that far of a stretch for, like, a state like Texas to say, if you're a menstrual tracking app like Flow, or if you're something, you know, some along those lines, and you want to do business in the state of Texas, you have to turn it over to the state of Texas and basically create a registry. Again, Poland did this, and... It's not far-fetched, and if you don't have a right to privacy under the 14th Amendment and you don't have bodily autonomy, then all of this is fair game. Um, and it's it's dystopian. I mean, like, I, like I hate to use, I feel like I hate to use the, the term, like, Gilead, but, like, like, this is happening. Like, this is where we're heading, and we're, this is a really dark, dark, dark path to be on. Well, I hate to end things on a challenging note, even though these are challenging times. I know you wanted to circle back to the ERA and I'm wondering if there might be a glimmer of hope in what you had to say about that. Funny story about the ERA. In the preamble to the ERA, which is is not like the actual operative language, it said that there was a time limit, but Congress can extend and Congress extended. They had 34 states, but they needed 38 states to ratify in the intervening year, since the time limit expired, four more states have ratified. I believe it was like Nevada, Colorado, Virginia. Might have been another one. Um, Virginia was the last. So it means like 38 states have ratified. The unfortunate thing is that a few states have unratified, which we're not even sure if there's a constitutional mechanism to do that. Like once you've ratified, like that's a one-way street. You can't like there's no take backsies with ratification. I mean, like Mississippi just recently ratified the 13th amendment. So like, and like also the 27th amendment was originally part of like a proposed package. I think part of the the initial like part of uh, amendments um, and it sat dormant for nearly 200 years and eventually got ratified after like a quiet lobbying effort. So yeah, so I don't, I don't necessarily think that is necessary. I don't think you could take back a ratification. And I don't think time limits on, on ratification are constitutional. But those have never been challenged, right? And so the ERA stands at 38. So what's going on? What's, what's, what's the one thing that can be done to, to get some action? Well, right now, President Biden can order the National Archivist to sign the ERA and acknowledge it as ratified. Obviously, conservative states will sue and seek an injunction and try to enjoin the National Archivist or, or any other judge or state from recognizing it. But it puts them on an incredibly bad path. And I would love, love the political argument to argue why we don't need an equal rights amendment right after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, especially in an election year. So, you know, I, I, you, you know, I'm, I'm tired of people thinking, well, it's not legally dubious or it might be legally dubious and it's unsettled and, you know, whatever. I'm like, SB8 was legally dubious and they, the Supreme Court let that happen. So stop, stop letting like this, well, we're not sure. We're, we're in a post-legal world. Like constitutional doctrines now make absolutely no sense. You know, all it is is outcome determinative. So, as I've been jokingly saying to friends, you know, we're in a post-legal world where, where it's all about vibes. So that, that's where I'm at. Um, 
Yeah. So I, so I would say, you know, pressure and like, you know, raise the awareness that all we need is the national archivist to sign the damn ERA and it would be ratified. Interesting. I have to say vibes sounds more older Gen Z than younger millennial. <laughs> I, I have my world planted and firmly in both. I think <laughs> my, my girlfriend is, is definitely older Gen Z. Any parting thoughts before we wrap up today's podcast? You know, I think most of the people listening to this podcast are going to be lawyers and members of the legal profession. I think it's incumbent upon us to understand that as lawyers, like our role is, is this kind of quasi state role, right? Like we're regulated by the office of court administration and our ethical rules are determined by the state courts and the departmental divisions and I think we're a lot of lawyers are going to be coming up against issues where their ethics and their duties to follow the law are tested by their own moral convictions, um, especially around access to abortion. Um, what happens if someone comes into your office and they came from Texas and they're being charged for an abortion? You know, should you advise them to to abscond to to Canada and seek a, a asylum because they may have solid asylum grounds right and they can't be extradited because that kind of abortion is not a crime in canada so you know so that there's that aspect and so the, i think folks are going to be coming up increasingly against that and i think as attorneys we need to understand that we should not become forces of persecution or, or, or become just another extension of state persecution and that sometimes are more like what is not legal is what's morally right. And I think we have to stand with that moral clarity um, and be willing to be rebellious lawyers, even if it may cost us professional consequences, because at the end of the day, like, why did we get into this profession? It's, you know, laws are made by people. Um, and at the end of the day, like, our, we should have a, a deeper duty to our clients to do what's best for them, not necessarily what is becoming increasingly illegal you know, due to due to uh, a perversion of our courts. So I think that's the last thing I'd leave everyone with. Well, Alejandra, thanks again so much for joining us today. Thank you as always to our listeners. Please like, share, and continue to find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Though this is our final podcast in the initial rapid response mini-series, this is far from the final word on Dobbs. Stay tuned for ongoing discussions and programming in the fall. For more information about joining the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, feel free to visit lgbtbarny.org.